everybody and welcome back to MHTV. We're really pleased to have you with us tonight. Um, tonight we're going to be looking at an, an interesting subject, a kind of controversial subject for some people as well. So um, we're going to try and approach it with kind of an open-hearted kind of way, uh, be honest and, and fair-minded to each other. Um, so if you can join in in that spirit, I think that would be really welcome too. So obviously I'm Nikki. I'll just pass you over to Vanessa so you'll let you know how you can join in tonight. Hello everyone, um, thanks for joining us tonight. As Nikki says, tonight we're talking about controversies and care personality disorder. Um, we think it's really important to have an open and honest discussion about this and we'd love it if you could join in and share your thoughts and views and any questions you've got for the panel. So if you're on social media and um, watching this, you can obviously join us on Facebook Live by commenting in the comments box and we'll be able to feed those questions through to the panel. If you are joining us on Twitter or you want to do a bit of both, then just follow the MHTV hashtag and you'll see the conversation there. And I'll be keeping an eye on the thread on Twitter as well. So any questions, um, just post them on there and we'll feed them into the um, discussion. Fantastic. So let's come around to our brilliant panel. So we start off with Sue. Sue, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Sue. I, I, I think, suffice to say, fit into sort of multiple roles, multiple experience. Um, of both receiving and delivering services. So I am somebody with a lived experience of what we may call personality disorder, personality difficulties. Um, and I've been involved, directly involved, I, I guess, in <coughs> specifically personality disorder for coming up to 11 years, which is remarkable because it's gone incredibly quickly. So I came originally as a, a um, trainer delivering national training um, to health and criminal mm -hmm. justice staff. And then through periods of time developed through to helping coordinate that, um, delivering DBT, so dialectical behavioural therapy, latterly, and then in very recent times actually mm. working alongside Gary and um, Alison, although mm. I've known of them for a long time, to, mm. to work alongside them to develop the higher level um, academic programmes around mm. personality disorder. Um, mm. So yeah, multiple roles. I've just recently been involved. I'm actually working with Gary, although it's been delayed for publication for a while. Um, mm. Recently had um, a chapter published in a brand new, again, probably fairly controversial textbook around contemporary thoughts around personality disorder. So lots of different activities. It always keeps me busy, active, mm. um, and passionate about co-production. Um, which we'll talk about Fantastic. later. Absolutely. So. Yeah, we'll come back to that for sure. Alison? Hi, um, I'm Alison. I'm a mental health nurse by trade. Uh, qualified back in 1986, so I've been around for a long time and seen lots of changes over that time. Um, spent most of my career in secure mental health and learning disability services, but I've worked in care of the elderly, acute services, and um, you know, I was a ward manager, a matron, um, before moving into academia. So I've been at the University of Central Lancashire for about eight years now and uh, have known Gary um, for probably about that time, actually, because Gary and I did our MSc together at Manchester. So um, <clears throat> but we, Gary and I have been working on, on this, um, on the, the offender personality disorder uh, programme that we deliver for New Plan. Um, for about two years and I'm with Sue for about the same amount of time but interestingly Sue was the trainer that did my knowledge and understanding framework training probably about 10 years ago 
Um, so yeah, um, yeah. Can I go back then? Oh, way back, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Gary, how about you? Hi, so I'm Gary Lomph. I'm a senior research fellow in mental health based at the University of Central Lancashire. Um, my background, I've been qualified for, I think, 23 years, 22 years as a mental health nurse. I'm also an accredited cognitive behavioural therapist. I still practice mm -hmm. um, privately one, one, one evening a week. Um, just really, really interesting person. I sort of... All throughout my career, been interested, been working with people with personality disorder in lots of different roles as a cognitive behavioural therapist in early intervention and psychosis service without really knowing it back then in them early days when we were working with diagnostic uncertainty, mm -hmm. uh, in forensic mental health secure services at the very start of my career. And then in 2010, I was fortunate enough to get the opportunity to develop a multi-agency personality order strategy, which looked at educating the wider workforce, so increasing their knowledge and understanding. And I think that's probably where me and Sue first come across each other in those early days of delivering KUF. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, my background clinically really become focused in the personality disorder services when I was setting up that multi-agency strategy. And that then led on to me doing some research, which I'm happy to talk a little bit more about as we go through today's mm. meeting. And mm. also, you know, it led me into a, that, that research and completing mm. the PhDs um, almost took me down that academic route. So where I'm now based in a, in a, in a research position. Mm. Um, very much still involved, very passionate about educating people around personalised order raising, awareness, um, also, you know, challenging stigma, you know, challenging the controversy around the label, all mm. of that stuff, really, really passionate and interested in that and very fortunate to work with my colleagues and yeah. in the model of co-production that we've been doing now, I think, in personalised order services for about well, since 2010, I've been involved properly in what I would call non-tokenistic co-production. So, you know, very passionate about that as well. So we do need to cycle back to that, don't by the sound of it. But maybe you've you touched on something we can get into right from the start. So what is it when we're talking about this being a controversial diagnosis or there being controversy about it? What, what are we talking about there? Anybody can jump in on that one. I guess we'll come around to you all at some point. I think for me it's that term disorder you know because yeah. that implies that there's something fundamentally de you know deficient or wrong with the mm. person and uh, what I mean one of my previous roles was managing a, a forensic personality disorder assessment team mm. and <clears throat> almost without exception everyone that we we assessed had had um, really really difficult experiences as children um, that had shaped them as individuals. And I can honestly say that if I'd had the same experiences, I, I might well have been sat where they were. Um, so I think that, it, for me, it's that it's that thing about someone being disordered. Um, it it, it mm. seems like it, it, it's devaluing, it's dehumanising. Um, it, I, I personally find the term very difficult. Um, and I think it's really interesting that the the most recent offender personality disorder guidance, um, and, and that's what it was called previously, back in, I think it was 2015, the most recent version that's come out refers to, to offenders with personality difficulties. Mm. So I think 
you know, we're beginning to see a shift. But yeah, that's that's my perspective anyway. I think think it's wrapped up in the history of it as well, though, because certainly I remember 10, 15 years ago working in acute mental health and personality disorder was absolutely used as a diagnosis to exclude Mm -hmm. people. Service. Absolutely, yeah. As soon as it was decided someone had a personality disorder, you know, yeah. they were generally entitled to um treatment and were kind of seen as being as being problematic. So it was very, very, you know, very stigmatized and very sort of negative and very much focused on blame. So for you know, people, particularly women that I've worked with over the years. Yeah. experienced a lot of complex trauma for example mm-hmm. and then were in services that were also rejecting them mm-hmm. um it was yeah. you know horrendous so you know sharing that as a reflection but also do you think that things have changed since much since then in your experience i, I would actually say yeah things have changed um i think possibly more slowly than than you might think um there's still there's still a very long way to go I and mean, i think in terms of certainly the training that i've been involved with for such a long time i think our original gary will um say this as well i think the original expectation was within sort of four or five years we'd train everybody everybody's attitudes thoughts perspectives would change and here we are 10 years mm. down 11 years down the line mm. and actually the demand for that training has never been bigger um, mm-hmm. And I think the, the yes, yeah, certainly I'd, I'd echo what what Alison said. Actually, that the diagnosis itself can get in the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think it because it's saying that it's the personality is disordered. Mm-hmm. That puts the person into a, a, a position of was well, something fundamentally flawed with them. Um, mm-hmm. Thinking of a particular person many many years ago who said actually that was the one thing that people said was amazing about me. I had a wonderful personality. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly somebody says, actually, that's flawed. Yeah. And that is, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's a, a label that is, it is used. And I'm not completely anti-diagnosis. I think it has a place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, it's about creating an understanding of where that person's come from, mm-hmm. what's happened to them, rather mm-hmm. than what's wrong with them. Um, t- yeah. yeah. And still You've many people who say it's just behavioural. They could choose to behave in a different way. Mm. Um, but actually people, as as Alison said, I think they, but for, you know, everybody could have gone down that route given similar experiences. Mm. But certainly the people that I've got to know, um, you know I, I consider myself very fortunate that, yes, I've had some difficulties. But when I listen to some of the stories, the narratives from other people, mm. they have survived against mm. all odds. Um Mm-hmm. And you know, in, in terms of coping mechanisms, it's maladaptive. It's it's negative, but it's kept them alive. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. working, I, I think working still in a, a a kind way because I think it's a it's a tough job that people do to work alongside people that do come along with um, complex, very complex histories, very complex needs. Um, but I think the diagnosis can go before them. Mm-hmm. So I've gotten staff almost think they know what's going to come through the door. Yeah, I think that's another. We're going to have to cycle back to education as well. By the looks yeah. of it, I'm <laughs> making a big old list here. But it's interesting what you say. This idea that we sometimes do this in mental health. We have a belief that if people just have information, then they'll be different. 
staff will be different and and that's training it's not education it's always really interesting isn't it how and then you see people say if we if we change the name of something then all the bad things will go away not not realizing actually all the emotional stuff still stays it just gets a different name so you've got some really points there to come back to but gary did you want to say anything about what, what why this is controversial what the challenges are with it well, I suppose just to pick up on the other points first, I think Vanessa made a really good point that, you know, is this historical and have we made improvements? And I think we really have. But if we look at no longer a diagnosis for exclusion, which was supposed to be the game changer, we're talking, I think it was 2003. Yeah. And I'm questioning myself because I'm live on here now. I'm thinking, have I got this date right? No, I remember it being in the dim distance pass as well. Yeah. Well, no, we're talking, we're talking, I mean, we're talking a long, long time ago. Yeah. Now, Lots of stuff's being put in place, lots of investments being put in place to educate the workforce, but we're still talking about the controversy relating to this diagnosis. So when people sometimes talk about, you know, um, it's nothing to do with the name or the label, if we educate the workforce, if we get underneath that, then we can create some sort of social change. Well, unfortunately, I don't think it's actually happened for... Mm people with this diagnosis i think we've done an awful lot of work in terms of education and i would argue that has education been enough if we haven't put the surface in the service infrastructure in place to actually help people better to mm. inform them when they're diagnosed what that diagnosis means to provide effective treatment mm. you know across the country and there's a real postcode lottery of what you know I've, we did some research not last year, the year before at Big Spud, I, myself and some colleagues, it was very much co-produced research. And we did a World Cafe event with conference delegates, and it was about capturing the label, capturing the conversation relating to the label of personality disorder. Now, obviously, it was representative of the conference delegates. So, you know, there was more occupational expertise there and mm. uh, participants than there was lived expertise. But we very much had a blend of people discussing and debating this and the controversy surrounding it and it was really interesting to hear hear those views but also hear that you know you know there were people who take that stance let's get underneath this let's change the direction let's educate people and then other people say well actually that's not enough alone we need to you know we need to change service provision and provide something a bit more uniform across the country because some people were saying my experience of getting a diagnosis was all right I got you know um you know I it helped me understand my difficulties I was able to meet with other people who also could I could relate to and it directed me to treatment that enabled my recovery and then there were other people who said actually you know receiving this diagnosis was blaming it was shaming it created stigma it, it, it closed doors to them so there's something about, there's something, I think there's something much deeper than just educating people. I think educating mm. people is a good start, mm. but we've been educating people for, if my maths is right, 17 years, and we're still having the same debates. And fundamentally, I do mm. wonder whether, going back to Alison and Sue's point, when we say personality disorder, those words, we can... <coughs> polish those words up you know personality is fundamental to your being and then to mm. say that's disordered mm. given the sort of that most people have had very difficult experiences mm. almost almost puts us on the on, on, on the wrong footing straight away for helping them so is it a real diagnosis then would you would you what would you say on that is this is this actual complex trauma misdiagnosed is it 
bipolar? Is it something completely different? Is it not at all a mental health issue? What, where do you guys stand on that? Because we know that there are gender differences. So you get different diagnoses depending on if you're a man or a woman. We know that uh, culture make, plays a part. We know all sorts of different things make a varied impact on the type of approach staff take towards a, a person experiencing this kind of distress. So how do you feel about that? Is it too, 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 too challenging a question or are you going to give it a go? <laughs> Is it real? <laughs> I, I, from my, my perspective, the, the diagnosis itself doesn't tell us a great deal. Mm. Um, mm. We talk about a, a, a physicist that some people may have come across, uh, Richard Penniman, who said you can know the name of a bird in a hundred different languages, but at the end of that, you know nothing about the bird. And it's for me very similar with whatever diagnosis or diagnoses that 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 people accumulate, and I think that is often what, what people do with personality disorder. People make an assumption that they know what the difficulties that person experiences because of that diagnosis. And I think that's very true for some other mental health diagnoses, but for personality disorder, it, it isn't possible to, to say categorically, yes, okay, that person's got borderline personality disorder, or they've got uh, uh, you know traits of histrionic personality disorder, or for one person I became aware of that apparently had managed to accumulate every diagnosis, which should not be possible. No. Because <laughs> they are in... in yeah. Um, sort of opposition to each other yeah. so I think it, it, it gives a, a broad far too broad outline and mm -hmm. it still for me comes back to um, looking at that particular person so the whole systems approach as Gary was talking mm -hmm. about the idea of, of formulating that person's difficulties what are they bringing what's their story what's their narrative um, and again taking it from that person directly not what somebody's seen in notes or what comes with them because again historically we do know that people have sadly attracted the diagnosis to be able to access services but it's a very very sticky one that you cannot get rid of i've personally asked for it to be taken off my records and that's not i've not achieved that mm -hmm. um so yes i mean it, it, it can it can help but I would still say, from my point of view, it's, it's a diagnosis can possibly distract from the real discussions that need to take place about that person, that person's history, which can often and is often incredibly difficult to hear. Mm. Um, and again, because of the, the, the more stigmatising approaches, it distances staff from people immediately yeah. because they understand what they're going to get. They understand somebody with antisocial personality disorder is going to behave in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not always accurate. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I'm not a fan of it. <laughs> <coughs> um, I would far rather create that formulation of somebody's history. Mm -hmm. What are they bringing? What can we, what sense can we make of that? And in that then, what can we do to help that person move mm -hmm. forward? And I guess yeah. that's what we're passionate about as, as our teams is, um, I mean, I certainly have people in the past say to me, you'll, you'll never make anything of your life, you'll never do anything. When I first applied to go to uni, no, 
you won't be able to do that. You won't be able to achieve that. And when I stood up and received my first class honours degree and my MSc two years later, yeah, that was for me the the bit that goes with it. And I think that's something that we, we're passionate about developing people. We all have skills, every single one of us. Yeah. But some of us struggle more than others to apply those. Right? Mm. Yeah. I think when we're educating as well, Sue, so, you know, and this is what's been great in doing this in co-production, we developed a set of values and a philosophy for our education <coughs> programmes. And within that, one of the key things we want lecturers to do when we're training people is to take that critical stance in relation to diagnosis and, and the exploration about it, because it's too easy, isn't it, to, to just sort of run with an umbrella term. And I, I've always liked the term, I worked in early intervention and psychosis, I've always liked the term of sort of working with diagnostic uncertainty. You know, in some respects, there's an argument, isn't there, that, you know, without <coughs> diagnosis we've got nothing to anchor things to so there may be commonalities in certain people's difficulties and experiences and the difficulties they have that will respond effectively to certain psychological interventions or support or treatment and we need to understand that but we get too hung up on the label and 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 simplify that and we need to work with individuals and every you know i've never i don't think as a therapist i find you know, it's really useful to have uh, an impression of what the difficulty might be because I can read around certain conditions and I can see what the evidence-based treatments are. But I wouldn't necessarily use that in my practice with somebody. I work with people and their difficulties, not their label. And I think we've got to become better at doing that is, is you know, really working with the, with, with the person. And the label might provide some direction but I suppose this is the challenge as well, and this come from the World Cafe event we did. Because we did have a higher proportion of occupational expertise, it gave us a slightly different flavour to mm. the discussion and debate around diagnosis, because a lot of the time it comes from people who, let's be honest, are, you, you know, being excluded from services, it's caused real problems, this diagnosis in their lives. And that's the, the, the narrative we often hear, I think by bringing the occupational expertise into the research we did, what we also found was actually there's some real implications for practice and research and service provision if we were to just remove this completely, this label, because mm. how will we get services commissioned? What about the progress we've all talked about today that we have made? How will we, um, you know, it's an international language as well. Unfortunately, you know, if we change, and we, we remove that label. There's, how will we translate that when there's research done in other countries? Because they might still be using that label and terminology. So, yeah, I think it's really complex. And I think, you know, I don't like the term and I don't like the words used in that term. But I think we also need to think about, I don't think it's as simplistic as removing it without consideration of the implications for removal as well. Okay, if you can hear my phone, we've got loads of questions coming in. Cool. Um, and also, um, Sue, Ben Glass just says, well done, Sue, on your studies. So, <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. So, I'll hand you over to Vanessa now, because she's got a ton of questions, as you'll be able to organise them and see where we're at. Before we move on, can I just pick up on, on something oh, that Sue and Gary have said? Um, yeah. Because I think I think it's really important that I mean, you know that 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 it is it's really complex as to whether it's a real diagnosis or not, and I think it's interesting that you know I worked in, in psychosis as Gary did, 
um, and my master's is in advanced interventions and psychosis. Mm. And I think, you know, when you're working with people who experience psychosis, what you focus on is distress. You know, so if someone's hearing voices and those voices are benevolent, kind, um, and aren't problematic for the person, then you wouldn't go anywhere near them. What you would work with would be the thing that was distressing. And as a practitioner, it, it frustrates me that we don't do that with personality disorder. And as an academic, mm. it interests me why mm. that is. Yeah. And I, and I kind of know why it is. There's lots of research about, you know, about why that happens. But I, I do think it's a, it's a really important point that we should remember that there's significant distress that's associated with the difficulties, mm. whether it's you know, whether someone's diagnosed or not diagnosed and whatever your beliefs are about the diagnosis. Um, and it does have a place. But I think what we need to hold on to is that thing about distress. So just wanted to pick that up. Yeah, it's important. Yeah. I think um, as has come in across really, a lot of the problem is in the label, isn't it? In the sense of, um, you know, calling somebody disordered fits into that whole sense of calling somebody damaged, which people yeah. refer to people as. And, um, you know, it's, it's very kind of deficit based, isn't it? It fits yeah. with a sort of and medical model that we've had around years and I think what Gary said earlier is really important point to pick out and emphasize around a whole systems approach because although that's jargon that we all use I think in this case it's really really relevant and important isn't it because yeah. we still have services that are quite siloed um, yeah. and still you know staff are still working with really limited resources so being able to work with somebody in a psychologically orientated way can be really difficult with limited resources and there's that whole issue of you know personality disorder being siloed off into a specialist service or you know as you say should all staff should really be trained in in them you know working with people with personality difficulties and I know for me um working in prisons um you know, probably most of the women had a, a diagnosis of personality disorder, but I would argue that most of the women were traumatised and it was trauma that was in their history. So I'm quite interested and someone's asked a question about it based on um, something I said in a previous session and that was really around, um, around trauma versus personality disorder. Di um, labels and obviously everyone's talking at the moment about trauma and that a lot of people with personality disorder may at some point be re-diagnosed re as having complex PTSD or trauma but do you think that that's just going to be another label is that enough um, or you know is that a very kind of superficial way of sort of dealing with the issue? I think for me I think as Gary said I think that whole systems approach is really important yeah uh, and I think education training is that's part of that. But I think that for me, there should also be an awareness across the whole system around trauma. You know, so a trauma informed approach that that everybody kind of buys into. That go, you know, it's it included within policies and the way policies are written and uh, you know and, and kind of thought about. So for me, the, the two kind of go together. Yeah. What, I think again for for myself, it's. Um, yes, there's been a lot of, of movement, particularly in the last few years, around looking at people's past histories around adverse childhood experiences. But again, those are, are, are really laid out for us to, to look at. Um, yeah. And that for me is where working with lived experience practitioners can help to create understanding about that. Because again, what is one person's trauma? 
Yeah. The, okay. uh, the, the word for me that mm. always gets in the way and frustrates me probably more, in all honesty, than the diagnosis is significant. That mm, person yeah. experienced significant trauma. Now, trauma yeah. mm. is significant if it's significant to that person. Mm. Um, and I think that is, that again is around the supporting supporting the people who support the individuals to understand if that is what's traumatic to that person, then that is the, the, the thing to work on. And, and that is, I think, where we come from a, across the board in, in the approach to all our work, um, the whole systems approach and including mm. the people who really have lived and experienced um, whatever those difficulties. I would never assume when I'm working clinically that mm. I understand what the person's gone through. I have no idea until they tell me. Mm, Again, I've had colleagues say, but there's nothing in their records to suggest they've experienced trauma. Mm. Have you asked them? Yeah. Asking the question. But Mm. also, I think maybe that's where some of the hesitation is, being prepared to have the answer. Um, Yeah. And also re-traumatising people, because people don't want to be asked the trauma question over and over again. You know, people can have, you know, 10 conversations with someone as part of the process of being in mental health care, can't they? So, you know, it's also been mindful of expecting people to, you know, relive relive their trauma for the purposes of us completing our assessments and doing our care plans with people. So I think that links to what we're saying about being trauma-informed as well. And also your comment, which was really important, about asking people what happened to them, yeah. also about asking people what matters to them as well is important, yeah. isn't it, in terms of all the personalised care stuff. Now, we've got um, another question that I want to ask because I think it's an important one, and that's by Ben Glass. And he's put, um, there is limited study, uh, there have been limited studies into ethnicity and uh, BPD, EUPD diagnosis. However, there are studies which indicate a much higher rate of borderline personality disorder diagnosis amongst white patients and black patients how do the panel feel that this fits into current conversations about race, mental health and white privilege? Mm. Complex question, but an important mm. one, I think. And that's to anybody, really, who wants to comment on that. Do you want me to read it again? Or? Yeah, please. Yeah. So the question was that there's been limited in Ben saying that there are limited studies into ethnicity and borderline personality disorder and emotionally unstable personality disorder diagnosis. Um, But there are studies which suggest that there's a much higher rate of borderline personality disorder diagnosis amongst white patients compared to black patients. How do you feel that fits into current conversations about race, mental health and privilege? So I suppose it's about, you know, why is that? Is that because there's a higher prevalence or is that around, you know, white privilege, yeah, and and not being intersectional in the way that we um, approach assessment and treatment for people and all the other issues that we've talked about? My my honest response to that is, I don't know. Mm. It's something that, yes, I think needs to be explored, mm. Um but what's coming into my my mind is exploration of a lot of the wider cultural aspects around the diagnosis. Um, yeah, is something that I guess hasn't been looked at in a, a great deal of detail. 
Mm. Is that around presentation to services? Is it around um, <coughs> acceptance of differences in, in cultural, um, different cultures? I don't know. Um, well, I may come back to that because I'm actually halfway through reading a book called Culture and Personality Disorder. It's yeah. Calling me. So I might, maybe this is the uh, nudge to complete reading that. So I'm yeah. Say, can I come back to that in a few months? Yeah, absolutely. Well, diagnosis is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? To be honest. Yeah. yeah. So it depends who's doing the looking, I'll say, rather than the person who's been looked at. And yeah. as well, if we're thinking that this is a lot to do with trauma, I think that children of all different backgrounds and colours are hurt. And yeah. I think what's interesting is if we see a missing population, then you want to wonder where they are, because they won't have gone. They'll be yeah. there, but they'll be imprisoned, probably. Yeah. And their behaviour or experience will have been criminalised rather than yeah. medicated. Okay. And I don't know that one is necessarily better or worse than the other, but I think it is yeah. a sign, isn't it, of, of some of the and real concerns and problems we have in the system. Yeah, and also I was talking about um, somebody that I worked with a long time ago and um, and that sense of like, Peter, you know, working with refugees, for example, um, and that sense that their trauma experiences don't necessarily fit our PTSD framework because obviously culturally, you know, what they've experienced is is, is very different and has kind of, you know, shifted in terms of people's experiences of cultural trauma. So I do think maybe there's something around that as well. Um, because I know, you know, some of the women that I've worked with who have been refugees, mm. there is there is a sense of, you know, a lack of understanding of their experiences because they're so removed from, mm. you know, what we've experienced. So just throwing that in there as my own reflection. But um, if Ben's listening as well, um, you know, let us know what you think. We'd love yeah. to know. Yeah. Off, if you off, secretly yeah. have the answer to this, <laughs> yeah. read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As a who was saying, I think you know, my honest answer would be I don't know. I've got lots mm. of ideas about what it might be, you know, around cultural stereotypes, unconscious bias, mm. uh, you know, um, maybe <clears throat> you know, lack of confidence in services, and that people think that mm. they're not going to get a good deal. So why bother? Um, mm. so, so yeah, my, mine would be the same as Sue's. I think, although I might have to borrow the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just think no, it's happy to have the discussion somewhere else as well. That'd be, yeah, that'd be really helpful. Yeah. There's a real lack of knowledge, isn't there, in this area? And a, a real lack of research, I think, done in this area. I think, I think it's only in recent years that there's, there's been attention drawn to the fact that people from ethnic minority groups are underrepresented. And there's a real interest growing around this and a, yeah. the real need to understand what's happening. But Again, I was very much like the other two when, when we got that um, that question from Ben. You know, not here to pretend I know. I think if we're open and honest and say, listen, we don't know, well, maybe we should know. And maybe yeah. that's the thing we need to do is to find out what is happening. And the other thing that we never really touched on, but, you know, is there also, um, are people getting diagnosed with other disorders and other difficulties and is there a is there a you know is is, is there something related to a, a bias in terms of ethnicity and diagnosis i don't know and what, what diagnosis mm. people receive and we need to understand that don't we? We really mm. do. yeah absolutely um at one point you were speaking about um 
this idea about education and co-production. I wonder if we could just mm. just just fill in a little bit more on that because that might be a, a, perhaps a different way we can approach this question. Mm, a question as well uh, as well about education and peers. So that'd be useful to bring into that question as well. Can, can I ask you to start this off? I think I spoke over you before, Gary. So I'm sorry about that. Would Would you want to give the background to the to the OPD stuff or? Yeah, I, can, I can do if you if you if you like. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fine. I mean, for me, um, when I first worked, went into working in personalised sort of services in the multi agency, um, we were given a blank canvas. And for me, I thought, well, how can we develop this strategy? I haven't got the knowledge. I haven't. It's all about being open and honest. And you know, I think the people who are using the services are the people who should be um, people who who access our services are the people who should be helping me develop this strategy. So straight from the off, the first people I recruited were people with lived experience. That was also jumping on the back of KUF and the model of co-production in terms of educational delivery, and it's being enlightening. And I think you know what what fascinated me when I was doing the knowledge awareness training, people never, we never really used to say who we were or what our background was for the first part of the session. And people would never have guessed. And I think what it does, it challenges misconceptions straight from the off. If you're working in a model of proper co-production, this isn't tokenism. This isn't, you know, people standing up and telling their story and then the expert stands in and tells you about personalised order. I think if we're going to do co-production properly, we do it where we, we, we are all, we all bring the, we all bring our theoretical knowledge. We help develop the people. You know, I was a nurse. I had to develop my presentation skills. We should, when we're working in co-production and education, we're also helping people um, develop their their facilitation skills, their presentation skills, their theoretical knowledge. So actually, we're working in true partnership. And the only difference then I bring to that to the to, to the table then my occupational expertise and that person complements their work with their lived experience expertise now going to the offender personality order pathway uh, the offender post offender personality order program the way we developed that was we recognized as a team me and allison leads our msc which is the longest standing msc in personality order in the country mm -hmm. in 20 years set up by one of our professors karen wright and you know, it's it's very uh, it, it's been running really really well. When we got the opportunity to do the personalised order program, what we recognised was we had a lot of expertise on theoretical knowledge and some clinical expertise, but because we've moved into academia, some of that might be in a few years ago or a couple of years ago. And, None of us had really worked in the offender personality sort of pathway. So what we developed was a model where it was co-production, but co-production with people with lived experience, helping us shape, develop those materials, deliver those materials, but people also with occupational expertise. Mm -hmm. So we've been on the call today, haven't we, Alison? We do one of our sessions around um, CAT, an introduction to CAT, cognitive analytical therapy. And, you know, tapping into somebody who's got expertise that that mm. is still practicing in that way to complement our training team. So our team training team co-produced, but co-produced, I would say, with academic staff who um, who bring that that academic occupational expertise, mm. people who are working in practice, and people with lived experience. And I don't think we could deliver it in any other way. For me, that that. Mm needs to be done and my colleagues will probably add to the, this discussion. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think I, I possibly, well, I have lived and breathed co-production um, 
from the very early days, even before getting involved with the personality disorder um, national training. Um, I, I think it, it's something that we perhaps we perhaps now take for granted that it's it's so embedded in what we do. We forget mm. that not all services are mm. quite on that page yet. Um, but it is something that that and there is a growing number of people. Um, well, I think we describe ourselves as a bit of hybrid, really. Of we fit in, we've got a foot in both camps, as it were. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, historically, I was told a couple of times I, I I couldn't do certain aspects of the work because I I wasn't a professional. But actually, I'm a professional, regardless <laughs> of whether I'm purely coming from a lived experience perspective or coming from an academic or clinical. It's still, and and I think that's what that's what we've shifted. In, in the last 10 years is an mm. acceptance that we all bring mm. different skills, different knowledge, different understanding, different thoughts. Um, but there is this growing evidence base that the very people who have access services are the people that you need <coughs> help embed um, the work throughout every, um, and again, it comes back to the whole systems and the whole <laughs> system has to include co-production. Yeah. Um, and many organisations think they do. I think if it's done well, um, that is where it can bring such change. Yeah. But there are resistances to, well, why would we include people who've accessed services? But, but yeah, again, they're the people with the, the practical perspective, if you like, um, and can apply that, that academic and clinical understanding on top of that. So, yeah. We have come a long way. I was and just looking at the time. Sorry. I was just saying, I was just looking at the time and we're already at 40 minutes past. Mm. <laughs> I know. Finish your thought, Alison, and then we'll start thinking just, about how we can tie things together. Yeah, it was just to say, just to kind of, you know, follow on from what Sue's just been saying about, you know, the value of, of, of co-production. I, I don't think it can be understated. You know, the, the, the feedback from students is phenomenal you know it, it it would be a poorer experience for students without the, the you know the 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 input of of people like so you know it, it, they add so much value and authenticity and impact you know to what what we deliver it just it would not be the same without it um, and I, I don't think it would have the same influence in terms of people's practice mm. and you know as Gary was saying I run the MSc at UCLAM and and it was really interesting talking to a student a couple of weeks ago we've only we only started at the end of September and you know she she you know she's not studied at level seven for a while and you know she was anxious mm. about the assignment and whatnot and so we had a conversation and I I'd kind of said to her because she's someone I worked with previously you know, how are you enjoying the course and she said, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, I'm, I'm going back and even even now at this very early stage, I'm having different conversations. Um, you know, she's in a fairly senior position. So she said, you know, people come to me with a problem and I'm having different conversations about what to do about that problem. Um, mm-hmm. So it, the, the impact, I think, is, you know, and, and the benefit is huge. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I was just looking at our list of things that we said we we're going to cover, which <clears throat> I think we're going to have to have a round to at a different point. But there was something that Sue was talking around, around specialist services and therapeutic relationships, I think might be really helpful to come back to. So do we need specialist yeah. circumstance, specialist services? 
that's an interesting. I think there's the again. Mm. My perspective is that there's always a place for specialist services, who can perhaps provide the more intensive, um, high um, intensity work with with individuals who perhaps present with with the higher end of the perspective of, of personality difficulties. But it still comes back for me to the the the, the person centred approach when when I work with with helping to support staff to understand a bit more. I, I, I often put it fairly simply that we all have we all have the tools in our tool bag to help support somebody. And those are the generally the ears. We can listen, we can validate, we can respond um, in an open and honest way. Um, and I guess that for me, that's a specialist intervention in itself. Um, that's the what's ninety six percent is in how we do, not what we do, that brings about change. Um, and certainly, from my own experience, it's been the quality of the relational aspects of, of any therapeutic intervention that's brought about the change. The intervention has helped. Don't get me wrong, mm. but um, it's how that's been presented and the working with me that, that's brought about change. And that's mm. when I'm working. Clinically, that's how I approach my work with with people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Estimate that, can you, Sue? And we talk about this a lot when we're training, don't we? The relational aspect and the importance of the therapeutic relationship and the understanding and getting alongside people and trying not to judge and you know really trying to you know walk in their shoes. How must this feel for for them in this particular mm. situation? And you know, one of the things that my research looked at, looked at um, primary care IAP services and we know that there's a high prevalence of people who could be diagnosed with personalised disorder who don't get diagnosed and we know what, that those people also receive a suboptimal treatment in primary care services because they're trying to treat CBT for depression and anxiety but actually when I interviewed patients who met that criteria what they said was most important was that they just wanted some flexibility of approach from people. Mm. They wanted a personalised approach. They wanted people to know them, know their names of their friends. No, they didn't want to feel like a number just going through a manualised prescriptive, you know, mm. treatment. Mm. And they just wanted a space to be heard and listened to and to offload as well. So I think sometimes we can underestimate the power of basic goods into personal care mm. and anyone can do that it doesn't have to be a fancy therapy anyone can sort of really try to understand and mm. do things that sue was just talking about their validation listening i think the, the problem comes i i suspect is when you suddenly start to encounter feelings yourself particularly as a young practitioner mm. that are suddenly very overwhelming because i think it's i think people start off don't they with this absolutely natural human response to want to hear connect show compassion and then are very quickly overwhelmed which i think is what causes people to pull back because mm. when i was a baby nurse i was given very clear direction to watch myself and i'd been like i had less i had less um cautions towards like really harmful medications and cleaning products that could have taken my hands off that we were using at the time but people seem to think that some people who we were caring for were, were toxic or dangerous or in, in a way that was really just about emotion it wasn't there wasn't there was no risk of violence there was no risk of even self-injury to themselves it was purely fear of feeling 
Mm. And it was really interesting to see how that was how that was taught to me as a young nurse. I would say, like, taught you were taught to be afraid of some people. Yeah, I, I think that not goes, the people I should have been worried about. <laughs> I think that goes back to what Gary was saying about whole systems approaches, though, because for me, whole systems approaches are about looking after the people who look after as well you know so it's you know that trauma-informed approach needs to relate to staff as well because you know there's a huge amount huge number of staff that probably have experienced trauma and as Sue said it's a very individual concept you know what's mm-hmm. traumatic to me might not be traumatic to someone else and, and vice versa so I think you know we've, we've got to think about how we how we support how we care for how we engage staff as well in terms of you know of, of helping them look after people who might be at times quite challenging mm-hmm. the development of staff as well though isn't it i mean it's interesting yeah, yeah. what nikki said there about when you when you're a newly qualified member of staff if you feel you haven't got the skills or the knowledge or understanding to work with Particular people is it does this add to the stigma is it easier to sort of say oh that person's difficult rather than I haven't got the skills to work yeah. with yes and yeah, one absolutely. of the other things that happens I think the first thing to go from staff teams when the pressure's under them you know services are under a lot of pressure probably never more so with COVID at the moment when they're under pressure the first things to go are things like supervision are things mm-hmm. like space for them to offload yeah. and manage their own emotions if we don't manage our own emotions how can we help other people how can we be effective in the way we mm-hmm. work people and and support them so i i always worry that the first thing to go with a service under pressure is that supervision that time mm-hmm. for staff mm-hmm. absolutely Let, let's go to vanessa and see if she can We've got lots of comments. She can pull any sort of like last thoughts through from what people have been tweeting and saying, and then we'll come to everyone in turn for like last last ideas and words. Vanessa, yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, there's been lots of um, thoughts on the um, thread. They're not really questions as such, but Joe Reist, um, if you're listening, thank you for all your comments. This mm. is quite a lot of comments on from Joe tonight, mm, and we've you. got. Um, I'm just going to read you some of them because they're not really questions, like I say, but they're quite useful comments so we've got stuff about um it's not just about being trauma informed but about being trauma responsive which i think is a really yeah um stuff about peers which you know has come across in the conversation we've had tonight um she's also put she agrees about cultural issues hugely important and underserved in research um something about i'm not sure what she means but the new world relating to media um and about war and about building a good workforce um then she's talked about is medication really the answer and how the system can be an escape from loneliness Mm. um and we've got a comment from grant fraser king who says um which is in response to what nikki was saying taught to be afraid of bull um a powerful statement nikki I'm going to invite our MHN teaching team to reflect on whether we still do that. Um, and also Grant saying that he agrees that um, supervision is a clinical priority. So, yeah, lots of conversation, actually. People are really engaging with tonight's mm. um, topic, which is brilliant, isn't it? Mm. That shows, you know, that there's a lot of interest and relevance to what we're talking about tonight. We don't always get as many comments as this, do we, Nikki? So, 
So we've managed to start a lot more conversations and maybe we've given answers to, but that's that's a very healthy thing, I think. In, in yeah. 40 minutes, if we'd wrapped up a problem, I think we'd be worried. Yeah. <laughs> so let's it's come to everybody. So um, Sue, just in the order I, I came to you to begin with. Sue? Yeah, I mean, I, I think thank you um, certainly for, for inviting us and, and me along tonight. And I think for me, it's a little frustrating in a, a very short space of time to try and cover yeah. a lot of those really pertinent comments. Um, and actually, yeah, for me, if I come away with more questions than answers, then I think that's positive. Um, mm. But it's a huge discussion to have and, you know, I'll continue into my old age, hope or older age before these two youngsters I work with comment, but uh, mm -hmm. I'll just keep trying to, to bring about change. Um, so thank you, it's been, uh, been really good, thank you. It's interesting, isn't it? Alison? <coughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me as well. I, you know, I've, I've enjoyed it and I think it's been, it's been, I, I've found it really thought provoking. Um, and I think for me, I think the take home messages are about taking that individualized approach um, you know, remembering trauma, remembering to ask the right questions. Most of all, though, remembering that therapeutic relationship. Um, you know, remembering that 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 is so so important, um, and to look after yourself as well as a practitioner. Um, so yeah, thank you, Gary. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, thank you so much for inviting us along. Um, always interested to talk about what is quite difficult some of these conversations sometimes and you know the work can be quite challenging but it's massively rewarding and i do think we are making progress but we we've just you know we're tip of the iceberg stuff we've got a long way to go to make services better for people who are diagnosed with personality disorder and for me the, the take-home things I, I i think we've touched on today are about you know the whole person the whole system the whole population and and you know really trying to i just think the education's a big part of this but then mm. we also need to get the service provision right and with that mm. we need more research as well and you know these these are just some of the challenges we've gone ahead but no it's been really really interesting thank you so much for inviting us mm. vanessa any last thoughts from you yeah, I think like everyone, it's been really interesting. And like every session, I learn a lot. Um, it's a long time since um, I worked with a personality disorder, Leeds personality disorder service a, a long time ago, who were doing some great work um, back then, which I'll say. But I think that there's been clearly a massive um, conceptual shift in the way that we think about supporting people. And obviously, the real emphasis tonight on value and co-production and you know, the humanity of, of this really and compassion, which I think is really important. But like we've all been saying, I think that we're moving in the right direction. But the reason why we've not had questions tonight is because there's still so much more that we need to do, isn't there? And I think, you know, we probably need to come back to this conversation as well. So, mm. um, you know, you're all welcome to come back at, at some point, um, open invitation there. Because I think it's a, it's a really important conversation to come back to um there's been a lot of interest tonight um so we will keep an eye on the um twitter feed and on the facebook make sure that we've answered questions um and if there's anything that's um missing we'll probably refer over to yourselves as well if that's okay and if there's anything that you think as a panel you know do 
you know, send us any links or any thoughts, anything that we've missed, and we can share that with people afterwards. So thank you. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, really, really pleased to have you with us tonight. I hope you've got lots to think about. I know we have. Um, and just let us say now, good night, I think. Night all. Take care. Night. Thank you. Bye.